last week, uh, we began a little mini-series um, where we are going to reflect upon uh, who we believe that, that we here at GCC are, are called to be, um, what we are called to be about here at GCC. And the way we articulate our mission here at GCC, um, uh, that's short for Grace Community Church, uh, where you are uh, right now, uh, is on the front uh, of your bulletin. We've got three uh, descriptions there uh, that we long to be about. We long to be about delighting in God, uh, demonstrating mercy, and declaring grace. Uh, But what I was quick to point out last week was the fact that uh, no individual uh, no corporation, no, no organization, no, no church uh, ever lives up to our ideals perfectly. That we're always um, swimming upstream on this type of stuff. We're always falling short, which is why God's people throughout Scripture uh, are called back to who God's called us to be. Um, so that, with, with the hope that as we are reminded of this beautiful picture of what God's called us to be, we'll be inspired by that vision, and that, that would show up in, in our practice. So last week, we, we took a look at the topic of, of delighting in God. This week, I want us to take a look at the second description that, that you see there, the, uh, the idea of demonstrating mercy. It's actually the title of our message today. Our passage for the day comes from the gospel according to Luke. This is Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 37. You can find this on page 12 of your worship folder. Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, he being Jesus, said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set on him uh, his own animal and brought him back to an inn, took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we're um, 
looking at a passage of Scripture today that, that, um, that can feel familiar. Um, Lord, I pray that, that, that familiarity would, would not lead us to uh, dismiss this or, or not engage with it in a way that um, allows it to speak to us. Take this, your word. Apply it to our hearts. Remind us of things we've heard all of our lives. Teach us things that maybe we have never uh, really processed or understood. But, but ultimately, Lord, would you, would you point us to Jesus? Would you encourage us that you are a God who, who loves us and pursues us and, and promises to change us and empower us to something else, something greater, uh, to conform us to his image? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this morning, uh, like I said, I, I just pray, I suspect this passage is something that we're familiar with, the, the story of the, the Good Samaritan. Um, I mean, even if you haven't spent a lot of time around Christianity or the Bible, there, there, there's a great possibility that, that you know this story, the story of a Samaritan coming upon another man who had been beaten and left for dead and intervening on his behalf. On his behalf saving his life. I mean, the passage that we just read then ends with this statement, go and do likewise. Jesus puts forth an imperative, a command, a call to action. Be like the Samaritan. And therefore, it's, it's no accident that, that as we spend some time today thinking about, you know, what does it mean to, to demonstrate mercy, I chose this passage. And yet I want us to see today that there's a little bit more going on here than just some generic call to be nice and help people in need. I mean, that's there, no doubt. But this call to demonstrate mercy, there's something more going on here. And what I want us to do is to look at two things. Two things today that that are going to serve as our two points for today uh, that Jesus is doing as it relates to the to the demonstration of mercy. The first uh, is that Jesus exposes the religious heart, and second, Jesus empowers the changed heart. Okay? Those are your two points today. He exposes the religious heart, and he empowers the changed heart. Uh, the context of the passage, and this is oftentimes as we talk about the Good Samaritan, I mean, there's a little bit kind of the backstory here. We just read it. There's a lawyer. He's come up to Jesus. He's asking a question. Now, we, we hear lawyer, and, and your mind probably goes to uh, someone who's involved in civil or criminal cases. Um, that's not what's going on here. By lawyer, Jesus is referring to someone who was an expert in Jewish law, in religious law. He is a scholar. He is well acquainted with the Torah. And this individual has come up to Jesus and posed him a question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life. How can I be certain that I am living a life acceptable before God? Now, the text is clear. This man is not just simply coming to Jesus to gain his perspective or or to acquire information. He's not coming to Jesus in good faith. The text tells us that this person is putting Jesus to the test He's trying intentionally to trip Jesus up. He wants to show that Jesus is a fraud. Because you see, Jesus is rubbing shoulders with all sorts of people that the religious establishment 
wasn't exactly fond of. Okay? Prostitutes, tax collectors, all sorts of other sinners. And so the religious establishment was seeing Jesus, and he's gaining this, this following, and what they're trying to do is to expose him as either some sort of theological liberal at best, or, or a blasphemer at worst. And Jesus knows this. And so Jesus answers the lawyer's question with a question. How do you read the law? The lawyer responds. He responds with the exact same answer that Jesus himself, when asked this same question, what is the greatest commandment? We see this in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is going to say, love God with everything you are. I'm paraphrasing here. Love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. That's Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer and this guy's answer, the same. And so Jesus replies to this guy, right on. Yeah, you do that and you'll be good to go. But for the guy, that's not enough. For the lawyer, he's going to ask a second question, a follow-up question. And Luke tells us the reason why he's asking this follow-up question is not to trip Jesus up anymore. Okay? That's, that's not what's going on anymore. It tells us in verse 29. Take a look at verse 29. If you want to know why he asked the second question, here it is. It's gotten personal for the lawyer. In order to justify himself. See, there's this, this previous question. What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question that necessarily breeds insecurity. Necessarily so. And it's a question that all people, all people, whether you're, you're religious or you, you think God is just you know, complete nonsense or, or everything in between, it's a question that all people at some level are wrestling with. Is my life acceptable? Okay? Whether the one evaluating whether your life is acceptable is God or you know, your family or your friends or your employer or your spouse or, or your community or your Facebook friend, whatever, am I okay? Am I okay? Is my life of significance? Is it of value? Do, do I measure up? Am I worthwhile based on whatever standard it is that I'm seeking to adhere to. And so there is. There's insecurity that comes along with this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life or the good life or whatever it is that makes me acceptable? Do you feel that? I mean, I want you, let's, let's, let's be honest for a second. Evaluate our lives. How much of our lives, if we're being honest is spent attempting to convince others, or God, or me, or you, that you're okay. I mean, you think about all the things you've done, the, you know, your failures, your mistakes, your, you know, this, the, the good stuff, whatever. Um, how much of our time is attempting to sort of cover up our failures and make us seem better than what we know we really are? How much of our mental and emotional energy, our heart, our money, our time is spent with the underlying motivation to prove to God, prove to other people, prove to myself that I'm okay, that you're okay, that we are worthwhile? That's what's going through this lawyer's mind. Am I really 
Am I really okay? Do I really measure up? And so the lawyer asked the second question, who is my neighbor? The lawyer does what we as human beings so often do, which is to ensure that we measure up, we create some rules for ourselves, some parameters that, that make it possible for us to, to measure up. If you're familiar with the term, you know, move the goalposts, we know this term. I mean, the idea here that, that here's the standard, but I can't really reach the standard, and so I'll just, I'll make some adjustments to the standard, I'll redefine the terms, I'll redraw the map, and then I can succeed. It's kind of like bowling with my son. Um, if you ever bowled with children before, uh, you know, they have this little thing on the side. I didn't have this growing up, but, you know, back in the good old days when, you know, it was hard back then. Um, but... <laughs> But, but nowadays, you know, you, you've got these little bumpers that kind of can come up on the side, and it's great. So, so, you know, he can wind up, and his form's not great, but, I mean, you know, who's, who's judging, right? Um, and, and so, but he, he can get it down there, and if it may bounce back and forth on the little things, but it's not going into the gutter. It's not going into the gutter because it's not allowed to go into the gutter. And so he can look at me and go, wow, I, I got really close to beating you, as if, you know, He can hang with my bowling game, but you get the point. I feel like like I'm being too passionate about bowling here, but, um, you know, here's the point. We've adjusted the game, and by changing the game, we've made it possible for him to be successful. If we change the game, then we can succeed. If I redefine who my neighbor is, then all of a sudden I can go, yeah, I can do that. Of course, the irony is that, I mean, so often... Even when we're the ones making the rules, even when we're the ones adjusting the standards for ourselves, we can't even keep those. I mean, the most notable example of this in my mind is the idea of New Year's resolutions, right? I mean, what do we do annually? Annually, we we make rules for ourselves, we put expectations upon ourselves that, that we are making for ourselves. And then what do we do? We break our own rules. And yet that doesn't stop us from, from doing it. Because this is the nature of the religious heart. Let me find some way to justify myself. Let me find some way to make me acceptable, to prove that I'm okay. And this is what the lawyer's doing with the question. Who is my neighbor? Who am I required to love so that I can be okay, so that I can be cool with God. What am I required to do? And I hope you hear some irony in the idea of, like, the notion of loving your neighbor, not from some idea of genuine concern for other people, but but just to make certain that you are okay. You've checked the box. You've justified yourself. I have loved you, and therefore I have done my duty. This is the nature of the religious heart. It's the nature of religious heart is self-justification. And Jesus does not let the guy move the goalposts. I mean, contrary to, to what we often hear about Jesus, you know, he's just, he's making it, he's making the law so much easier, okay? Old Testament, God was so harsh in the Old Testament, and now Jesus comes along and, you know, it's just, you know, whatever. In one sense, Jesus actually makes the law harder because he goes deeper. I mean, he goes into dude's motivations, to, to, to what's really driving him. He goes into 
to his heart. And so he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, the story of a man in need is robbed and beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. And what do we see from the quote-unquote religious people in the passage? Well, see the priest. I mean, surely, surely the priest will stop, right? I mean, he's, he's got, probably got the collar on. Not, not really. But, um, but he's, he's looking the part. He's going he's gonna to stop. I mean, if nothing else, like, he'll feel shame enough to stop. But he walks on by, even crosses the road to not even get close. And then we see the, the Levite. This is the priest's assistant. This is the, the guy underneath him, okay? Maybe the priest was busy. This guy, I mean, what else has he got to do, really? Um, surely he'll stop and help. Does the exact same thing. Follows the, uh, the, the guy he's supposed to be following. And here's what Jesus wants this man, this lawyer, to see. He wants for us to see it, too. It is entirely possible to know all the right answers, to, to be very articulate about what God requires. It is entirely possible to be very passionate about, say, theology, and, and, and yet that be completely detached from our lives. I mean, this guy knew Torah better than you know anything in the world. He was an expert in Torah. He knew the law backwards and forwards. He knew to love his neighbor. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's 101 kind of stuff. And yet, it is entirely possible, this is what he wants us to see, that, 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 that there can be this massive disconnect between what we claim to believe about God the things that even we come here to celebrate week after week after week, and how we actually live our lives. Not, not simply in the realm of, say, personal piety, okay? You think personal piety, okay, here's how, this is my personal devotion. These are the things that I'm going to, to do, uh, the, thing, you know, the big sins, I'm going to avoid the big sins, and I'm going to do these certain lists of sins. That's kind of personal piety stuff, and, and we see that in Scripture. Don't hear me diminishing that at all. It's fine and good. But what can oftentimes get ignored as it relates to what it means to follow Jesus is what we see here is that our, the practice of our faith, what Jesus highlights here, is the love that we are called to have for other people. Our love of neighbors, our extension of mercy and compassion to other people. What Jesus wants to expose here within the religious heart is the great possibility that it is empty and self-serving and indifferent to the lives of other people. I mean, Jesus saved his harshest words for the religious establishment. And I, I want to be clear here, because you can kind of make the Pharisees into these cartoon characters, and they're just, you know, terrible people, the, the foils or whatever. I mean, Jesus is doing, like we, we just talked about it this morning with Acts chapter 2, when Peter gets up and preaches, he's preaching to the Pharisees because he's telling them, you should come and believe in Jesus. This is a lover's quarrel, but it's a pretty good quarrel. 
want you to listen to something that Jesus says to, to, the, to the scribes and Pharisees. And this is Matthew chapter 23. He says this, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so to do and observe what they tell you. You should. You should do and observe what they tell you. But not the works that they do. For they preach and do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move with them their finger. And he says this directly to them, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus is harsh towards the religious establishment. And, and it's a message that, that we as you know, churchy kind of people have to hear. We need to hear. Now, some people will hear that and kind of go, you know what, you go get them, Jesus. Go get those religious people and just, you know, let's just pile on the religious people. I mean, that's, you know, easy, to, easy just to blame them for all the ills of society. It's, really, it's the religious people's fault. And so if the takeaway of this passage is just to sort of go, you know what, we need to be more like the Samaritan and less like religious people with all their rules and all their judgment and, and that kind of thing. If that's the takeaway, mm, there may be something missing too. Now, to be clear, I mean, there is the command at the end. Go, go and do likewise. Here's the Samaritan. Go and do likewise. But I want us to look back for a moment to draw our attention back to how Jesus responds to the first question. Okay? Lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer that the man gives, the answer that Jesus agrees with, the summary of the law. If you want to earn your way to God through your effort, here's what it is. Here's what the law requires. The summary of the law. But it's important to point out that that though this is the right answer, what we see throughout the whole of Scripture is that no one is actually capable of doing it. No one's actually doing this. Yes, it is the right answer. But the idea that there's anyone out there who's loving God with every single thing that they have, and they're truly loving their neighbors as themselves, Scripture is clear, there aren't any. That there's no one righteous. That there's no one who keeps this perfectly. No one, that is, except for the person in this story talking. The person being asked the question, Jesus, the one who came to rescue people who needed saving. And therefore, if, if the only takeaway that we have of this passage is be like the Samaritan, don't be like the religious person, the problem is that be like the Samaritan, go and do likewise by itself is actually just another form of religion. Another form of self-salvation. I mean, you know, instead of saving yourself through personal piety and scripture memory and, and self-flagellation or whatever, save yourself through service. Save yourself through Facebook likes of various causes. Save yourself through political positions or, or whatever it is. Save yourself that way. Be really, really passionate about all of these things. The problem with the question, the problem, sorry, the problem is this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Because the question in and of itself implies self-salvation. And so we're forced to think, choose between two options here, two versions of self-salvation. But rather than identifying with either the religious version of self-salvation or the, or, or, or the Samaritan, quote-unquote, version of self-salvation, there's another person in this story that I want us to spend a moment considering. It's the guy in the ditch. It's going to bring us to our second point for the day. That Jesus not only exposes the religious heart, but he changes or he empowers the changed heart. Before we can discuss what it means to go and do likewise, it's clear we're supposed to do that. Before we can become the Samaritan, though, we must realize that we are the guy in the ditch. We are the ones who, as the song we sung earlier says, that we are, we are broken and needy. Um, Bruce Brooke is sick and sore, wounded here, left for dead. We are the ones who are victims. We maybe even the ones who've gotten ourselves into trouble. And what we all need is for someone to see us in the midst of our desperate and dire situation and have a heart move towards compassion. Someone who would look at us in the midst of our situation and extend mercy to us. Someone who would leave a place of safety and pursue us. Someone who would bind up our wounds. Someone who at the cost of himself would pay any debt that we owe, that we couldn't pay ourselves. What we need is someone to be a true neighbor to us. That's what this man needs, and that's what we need too. He does not need a system of self-salvation. He doesn't have much to offer at this point. He needs the mercy of God to come and to intervene on his behalf. And guess what? That's what we all need as well. That's what you need, and that's what I need too. And if you know that to be your situation, to be weak and wounded and sick and sore, and Jesus has come to you, and he has brought you unto himself, then that's what you've experienced. You've experienced the mercy of God in your life. And there's this, we see it throughout Scripture over and over and over and over. We see it in the Ten Commandments. The first verse of chapter 20 of Exodus is this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I have saved you. Now let me talk to you about how you're supposed to live. It's gospel logic, okay? I want to show, read a couple of passages here to you. To, so you see this kind of gospel logic, okay? This is Ephesians chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Why should you forgive? Are you called to forgive? Yeah. But what's the rationale? Why are you called to forgive? Well, God has forgiven you. Here's another example. This is Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's presenting an offering for the church to contribute to. He doesn't just say, give your money. 
He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so the implication is clear. Give. Why? Because God's given to you. This is Exodus chapter 23. This is Old Testament here. Uh, when Moses, he's talking about the laws in the promised land. What does he say? You shall not oppress the sojourner. Why? Because you know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is gospel logic. Over and over again, if you think about what we're called to do, it is you have received this, and therefore you are called to extend it to other people. Love your enemies. Why? Because you were an enemy of God. And he extended grace to you. Welcome the stranger. Why? Because you were an outcast. And God welcomed you. Extend it to all sorts of people. A couple years ago, I, I... I worked through a book um, by a guy named Scott Sauls uh, up in um, Nashville, pastor at Christ Prez up there. It's a book called The Friend. I think some of you ladies actually did it. Um, and, and it's really a, a neat book. I and mean, it's got like 25 chapters. They're not really terribly long. But, but it, what it does is it just talks about the, the development of friendship with all sorts of, of peoples, right? Um, and, and so I was working through it with a group of people and about two chapters, three chapters in, I kind of said, you know what, I can pretty much tell you what, what the basis of this entire book is going to be, because I'm seeing sort of a pattern growing here. And it's that same gospel logic pattern. That's you, and God came to you in that. Now go give it to other people. You needed mercy. And God intervened, not because of something good about you. He just did it. He had a heart of compassion towards you. And now you're called to extend it, to extend it to other people. To who? What kind of other people? Well, there's a reason why that Jesus chooses a Samaritan, okay? He chooses a Samaritan as the guy who's going to be the one to be the the so-called exemplar in the story. Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. He hated them. They hated them. Okay? I mean, if you don't know the history here, I mean, it's kind of some Old Testament background on this, but basically what you had, what was, you know, 721, the Assyrians came in, they took the northern kingdom, they took a lot of people, Assyrians uh, basically mixed with Jewish people, and they created this, this group of people called the Samaritans, which were ethnically and religiously half-breeds. They weren't like fully Jewish, but they were kind of Jewish. So they had a few things in common, but, but not a lot. And so there was a lot of argumentation. But more than that, they just, I mean, they did not like them. They were called dogs, Samaritan dogs. That was the language. And Jesus picks this person to be the exemplar in the story about who the neighbor is. More than that, He talks about not simply who the neighbor is, but what a neighbor does. Okay? Let me talk about what it means to be a neighbor. But but as it relates to who the neighbor is, the question then we have to ask ourselves is, who is that for you? 
Who is Jesus calling you to extend mercy to that, frankly, you don't want to? <laughs> because that's who he's calling you to do it to. That, that, that's, that's the point of, of the passage, is that we extend mercy when we're so tempted not to <laughs> because of the gospel. That we demonstrate mercy as those who have received mercy. What does that, what does that look like in your life? When, when does that happen? Okay? I mean, I, I think it most definitely involves personal interactions. I mean, we all have our, our biases, our, um, I mean, let's just say it, right? We are in a contentious time in our nation. It is, it's brutal. It, it, it grieves me. It should grieve us all. And it would be very possible for us to sort of divide ourselves up into people on one side of the aisle or on the other side of the aisle. And, and what we're seeing here is a division of, I mean, this has some implications for the church, how the church functions. Can we love people who don't necessarily agree with us? Can we extend grace and mercy to people who disagree with us on all sorts of other issues because of Jesus, because of the gospel? Can we do that? I think we're called to. I mean, I think as it relates to the person in need, okay? Thinking about this in terms of, of a larger sense, not just our personal interactions. Um, we are called, it says it here, we are called to love our neighbors. Now, there is all sorts of good, healthy discussion that the church has to, that Christians, as it relates to not just our individual interactions, but maybe on a broader scale, larger scale, we're talking about kind of social stuff, political stuff, economic stuff, whatever. There's all sorts of issues that Christians may differ on, that there's good, healthy debate. I'm not sure, I mean, that word healthy is probably not a good, but there's good robust debate that Christians can have on the question of how we think about solving larger problems, not just sort of interpersonal problems. Those are good debates. Those are good debates. Those need to happen. But my fear in all of this sort of politicized stuff is that what can, what can happen is that Christians can somehow look at what we see in a passage like this and go and forget, like, I'm called to love my neighbor. Like, that's a non-negotiable. Now, we can talk about policy. We can talk about the best way to do that. All right? That's a, that's a good debate. But you can't just sort of go, ah, I'm not really called to that based on what I'm seeing here from Jesus. But I want to bring it back down to us for a second. What does it look like for us at GCC to be a place that demonstrates mercy? One of the more encouraging things that I've, um, I've had this conversation multiple times with people is that is there's this sense that you can come into this place 
and this is not to brag about us, but I, I don't want to do that. Uh, it's not about us. But that you could come here no matter what. You've got stories. <laughs> you've got shame. You've got all your mess, all your hurt. And you can walk here and walk into those doors and not feel judgment. Even though you may go, hey, you know what, I've, I've made a mess of it. Maybe you're a victim, whatever. But you can come here and know because God has been kind to us, we want to be kind to you. So let me brag on you for a second. And let me challenge us all the more that, that this could be a place, that we long for this to be a place where you can come here and you can rest and you can receive and you can hear the message that Jesus loves you, no matter what. No matter what. Because that's what we want demonstrating mercy to look like, mercy instead of judgment. Because none of us, none of us, Come here with our act together. All of us come here weak and wounded, sick and sore. And all of us are desperately in need of the mercy of God. And because of Jesus, we've experienced that. My hope is is that can become all the more something that we continue to value, that we come back to over and over again, that we are a welcoming place, not just some like, you know, generic nicety, but that because the gospel is true, because we have experienced the mercy of God, we long to see, we long to do that for one another. We long to do that for anyone who would come here and we would welcome people in. Our world is dying for that. This message of Jesus, our world is longing for that desperately. And they're not looking necessarily for all the right answers. I'm all for truth, all for theology, all for scripture. They're longing for a people who want to, broken as we are, live this out together. By God's grace, would that be us as we stay close to him?